0: In this episode, you are going to hear a conversation that I had with Dr. Peter Gray, all about the atmosphere and how it can encourage real meaningful learning. There were so many good things that we discussed that I didn't want to try to put it all into one episode. I also didn't want to cut it down to less than an hour. So I am splitting it into two separate episodes. This is the first half of our conversation, which includes real life learning and how school environments actually don't foster real meaningful learning and how real life living in the home, living in the community is going to help springboard that learning more so than in the artificial environment of a classroom. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. You're listening to Simple Wonders, the podcast for parents who want to raise happy, curious, lifelong learners. Hi, I'm your host, Jessica Smith, certified family life educator and mama of three. Join me as we explore simple tools to nurture your child's heart and mind. When we say that education is an atmosphere, we do not mean that a child should be isolated in what may be called a child environment, especially adapted and prepared, but that we should take into account the educational value of his natural home atmosphere, both as regards persons and things, and should let him live freely among his proper conditions. It stultifies a child to bring down his world to the child's level. And that is one of Charlotte Mason's principles from her 20 principles on education. And to help me understand this principle better, I've invited Dr. Peter Gray on the podcast today to discuss his experience and research in this area. Peter Gray is a research professor of psychology and neuroscience at Boston College who has conducted and published research in behavioral biology, developmental psychology, anthropology, and education. He is an author of the book, Free to Learn, why unleashing the instinct to play will make our children happier, more self-reliant and better students for life. Welcome Dr. Gray, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for inviting me, I'm very happy to be here.
0: So Dr. Gray, in your book, you talk a lot about children learning better from their natural environment, like home and the community. And that traditional education is not preparing kids for the real world. Can you tell us more about your research into compulsory or traditional education?
1: Well, uh, actually, most of my own uh, research has been with people who have not gone on to traditional education or have left traditional education for one reason or another. For homeschooling or home-based unschooling, or for a, a very alternative school where they have, uh, where they're not segregated by age from other children, and uh, and there's not uh, big divisions between children and adults, and where children can follow their own interests. So, I've been pursuing that. I've been also paying some quite a lot of attention to what is happening with children in um, conventional schools and how conventional schools over time have become ever more um, unhealthy i think it's not uh, an exaggeration to say that unhealthy environments for children um so uh so i could maybe i can start by talking a little bit about the evidence of of how um, uh, of how conventional schools are actually harming children so um we know that right now um levels of uh, anxiety and depression even of suicide um are higher than they've ever been for school-aged children ever been in the past and um I think there are two primary changes in our culture that have led to this Uh, one is that we are in various ways preventing children from being part of the real world that they're growing up in we are uh, not allowing them to just go out and play in that world we're not allowing them to roam on their own to travel on their own this is the first time, well, the last few decades, we've been gradually restricting children's opportunities to be out there in the real world. Um, one reason is an increase in fears. I would argue and have argued that these fears are largely irrational. We're very afraid of strangers might might uh, kidnap our children or damage our children in some way. We're afraid of traffic. We're afraid of various things that, uh, even in areas where these are not actual dangers. And, um, uh, and so, but as a society, we've come to believe that you're a neglectful parent if you're not allowing your child, uh, if you're not preventing your child from um, exploring and playing and um, in, acting independently out there in the real world. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that the school day has become longer, this amount of homework, especially for young children, has greatly increased. The opportunities for play at school have greatly decreased. And the pressures at school, um, the homework at school, all of these have increased. Uh, This has been well-documented such that uh, over time, children have less and less opportunity to do anything outside of school or schooling or adult-directed activities Um, I've just recently published a paper, it's actually still in press, but the manuscript is available for people who are interested, uh, in the uh, Journal of Pediatrics, um, making the case from a wide range of lines of evidence that children need independent activities where they themselves are doing things, not adults, overseeing, directing what they're doing in order to acquire the confidence that they can do things in order to learn how to do things. In order to develop what psychologists call an internal locus of control, which means that I'm capable of making decisions. I'm capable of solving problems. I'm capable of meeting the bumps in the road of life. If we're always protecting children, if we're not allowing them to have adventures, then they have no opportunity to develop these concepts. Another way of saying is they don't have much opportunity to develop courage as well as an understanding of the real world out there. So I think that's a good part of why we're seeing these high levels of anxiety, depression, and even suicide. Um, so that's, that's part of it. Another point to be made is that over the same period that we have been um, restricting children's lives outside of school, spending more and more time in school, and making the school experience ever more narrow, we have seen a decline in um, creative thinking at every grade level in uh, school of school-age children. Um, this has been tracked by a researcher whose last name is Kim, who um, a few years ago analyzed scores on a standardized test of creative thinking, Torrance's tests of creative thinking, which have been given to children over many decades in normative groups of school-aged children. It turns out this is a very valid test uh, because there is uh, data showing that children who score high on this battery of tests are far more likely as adults to make true creative um, uh, contributions to society. They're more likely to start new businesses, more likely to make new inventions, more likely to. Right, novels, more likely to do the whole thing, whole range of things that we regard as creative contributions to society. Uh, this is the best predictor we have of that, better than IQ, way better than grade point average in school, and uh, better than teachers' predictions of who will be creative. So it's interesting to note that ever since um, the early 1980s, scores on this battery of tests have been going down. Um, and they have gone down quite dramatically over time and to me it's no surprise when you take away the opportunity for children to play and do creative things. (laughs) You take that out of school and you also take opportunities to play and do creative things outside of school because you're constricting children's lives even there. Um, no surprise that the ability to think creatively and solve problems creatively goes down. So that's some of um, some of what I could say. I could go on forever, uh, obviously. Well, also one of the reasons we know that school is part of the problem, a big part of the problem is this. Um, I said that the rates of suicide, the rates of anxiety and depression are at record levels now. It turns out that these rates all track the school year. So when during school vacation, um, anxiety goes down, depression wow. goes down, suicides are cut in half Among the suicide rate is cut in half among school-aged children. So I first got whims of this from, um, from colleagues who are, who, hard are um, child psychologists who say, you know, my business drives up in the summer or the kids are OK. Then. <laughs> so, you know, it's when they're in school that they're suffering. And then uh, one another line of evidence comes from a study done by the American Psychological Association a few years ago called Stress in America, in which they surveyed people uh, across all demographic groups and all age groups. Um, for how uh, stressed they felt over the past uh, X amount of time and um, what they found was that teenagers in school were the most stressed out people in America and 83% of them when, when asked attributed their stress to school. Uh, when they did this same survey in the summer, they found that the number who said that they had experienced severe stress over the past week or or two or whatever the length of time that was asked for in the survey—I forget that—was um, uh, cut in half. So, um, so the evidence is pretty clear. School is. Uh, a major source of anxiety depression and most uh, tragically even suicide for young people
0: wow i i had known that stress was so high stress and anxiety among young people was high but i didn't know that it was during the school year yeah the highest i didn't yeah. have no idea that is it, fascinating
1: it, it doesn't disappear in the summer but it is greatly reduced in the summer. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what do you, in your opinion, what is it about school that is so stressful for kids? Because it's not just being somewhere away from home. It's actual the way that it's structured that is making it so difficult for them to to relax and to learn and to grow.
1: So the way I sometimes say this is uh, when I'm talking to adults is imagine that you had a job that had these characteristics. Everything you do is micromanaged. You're constantly being told what to do. You're constantly being evaluated. You're constantly being compared with all of your workmates to see who's better and who's worst. You're constantly being shamed in front of everybody else if you don't perform as well as other people, not because necessarily because people are deliberately shaming you, but simply because everything is be, being made public and there's a constant comparison. You can't get out of your seat without permission, you can't even go to the bathroom without asking for it. If you consult with your colleagues in this job, it gets called cheating. <laughs> so. Uh, how many adults would accept a job like that? There's a, I've done some uh, l- searching into the literature on what uh, kinds of jobs people like, people ad- hate. This is exactly the kind of job that would be in the category of, I hate this job. I would never <laughs> work at this job. You'd have to pay me a million dollars and then I would quit. So that would. that's what we and do with just- children.
0: <laughs> Just to add to that, um, what if you had coworkers that you had an adversarial relationship with? They were threatening you. You felt unsafe, but you were never able to quit that job. Um, it could be very stressful, if you know, in that case as well.
1: That's right, and you don't and um, I, I think that that's also part of it, so you, you might also add, suppose you had suppose all i mean these are some of the I mean what I've described is some of the most men, but suppose all your coworkers were exactly your same age. You know yeah. <laughs> why would you want that? I mean I I I want some coworkers quite a bit younger than me and be nice to have some that are older than me. We yeah. we can you know, our differences add up and help us out. And the, um the other thing, yeah, I, I think what you're getting at is the following. I think school among other things is a breeding ground for bullying, uh, for a number of reasons. One is um The age segregated nature of school promotes bullying. I've done research on uh, age mixed play and uh, compared it to uh, when children are just playing uh, with others their same age. Uh, And bullying is much less in age mixed play. Somehow the the presence of younger children brings out the nurturing instincts in older children so that they're not only kind to the younger children, which we would expect them to be, but they're also kinder to one another when younger children are around. Um, I think from an evolutionary perspective, that's quite natural. We, in some sense, as children get older, especially by the time in their teenage years, they're kind of practicing to be parents and uh, and younger children kind of bring out that caring instinct um, that is part of human nature and essential to our being parents eventually. So uh, so that's part of it when you segregate children by age and especially when you do that in an environment that's fundamentally a competitive environment. I mean, school is founded on competition. The whole motive in school is competition. Can you do? Can you do better than other people? Can you? Can you do better than the curve? Can you get an A? while other people don't get an A. So that's the. Uh, it's. Uh, it's a, It's a competitive world, and it's a hierarchically structured world, where you know the the students are at the bottom of the hierarchy. They have no power and when people have no power they tend to um exert power against one another mm-hmm. <laughs> they tend to i mean it's it's um prisoners uh who people who are locked up together um not just because of the nature of people who end up being in prison but also simply be, uh, very being locked up together creates uh struggles among <laughs> among the inmates, if you will, and uh, who are competing for authority with among the inmates in an environment where it's pretty clear that this is this is a world that values power because teachers are rule the classroom because they have power. Teachers are ruled by the principals and superintendents because they have power. Mm-hmm. So children are at the bottom of this hierarchy. and. That's um, a recipe for uh, for uh, bullying uh, among among them.
0: So you mentioned mixed age um, that children just do better; they're more mature when they have older or younger people around them. And um, I it just remind me of your book you go through for the first part is a large part talking about uh, how people learned before there was compulsory education. And I, I mean, it's only been, was it 200 years, maybe give or take that we've had mandatory education. Um, And we kind of think we don't really realize that people learned what they needed to know for life without having to go to school for seven or eight hours a day. Can you talk to us a little bit about the I guess, um, anthropology part of this? How did people learn um, in the real world?
1: Yeah, well, let me answer that in two ways. Since you mentioned the anthropology part of it, let me start off with um, research into hunter-gatherers. So <laughs> during um, most of our existence as human beings, we were all hunter-gatherers we, before agriculture existed. Um, all the time before 10,000 years ago, we were all hunter-gatherers. And so it turns out there are a number of groups, actually a fair number of groups that survived as hunter-gatherers into the middle and even the late um, 20th century and were studied by anthropologists. And um, I got interested in what those anthropologists had found because I was curious about how children Learned in those cultures? Mm-hmm. Did they? Did the adults deliberately teach the children? Did they have anything comparable to what we call schools? Did they? Um, and, it would, and so I, I did a survey of uh, anthropologists, a graduate student of mine, and I did a survey of ten anthropologists who, among them, had lived in seven different hunter-gatherer uh, cultures in um, on uh, four different continents, and what we found, what every single one of them said when we asked about how children learned was um, that children are free to play and explore all day long. They're not segregated off from adults, uh, but they uh, observe what what adults are doing. They uh, are part of the real culture that is existence. They're never there's never any place where adults are that the kids can't be mm-hmm. <laughs> so they can see what adults do very directly and um, they're very curious about adults they pay attention to adults and and also even more so perhaps attention to older children because they're never segregated across age they're always playing in age mixed groups the uh, bands are f- fairly small so even if they wanted to segregate by age there wouldn't be enough kids your own age to do that so you're always playing across fairly wide age age groups and when they're playing together the younger children are always learning from the older children and the older children are in some sense caring for and in a very informal kind of way, teaching the younger children as they explain things to the younger children are correct, and when they're playing together, um, bring them up to higher levels of play. So um, that's how children are learning in hunter-gatherer. And they play at the very, at, they, they kind of automatically, nobody has to tell them to, they play at the activities that they can see are very important to their cultures. So and they play at hunting by whatever methods the culture uses for hunting, uh, they play at, digging up roots, they play at games that involve identifying plants and animals, they play at the music and art of the culture. Uh, They play at building huts, they play at all the kinds of things that they see uh, by watching the adults and the older children are part of what life in this world I'm growing up in is. So that's how presumably children always learn. So I've argued that there's sort of two most important educative drives that all children are born with one is curiosity to understand the world around me what's out there and especially curiosity about other people and what other people are doing and the second is the drive to play which is um, the drive to uh, do things that uh, are in some way modeled after the things that you observe out there in the world play is uh, practice for practice of skills. There's sort of well, the way I think of it is there's sort of two aspects to education. I think anybody would agree with this. We need to acquire information, knowledge, understanding, and we need to acquire skills. These are somewhat different categories of education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. So um, curiosity serves the function of acquiring knowledge. <laughs> mm-hmm play serves the function of acquiring skills, practicing skills until you're good at it. That's why children have these extraordinarily strong drives to explore and to play. And these become very clear, very apparent when, um, apparently, when one observes children in a hunter-gatherer culture. I haven't directly observed them, but this is what I hear from the anthropologists who have. So that's what I can say about hunter gatherers. But let's say let's go back maybe two hundred years uh, instead of uh, thousands of of years <laughs> of of human history. So what, what when when before schools were started, of course, the printing press had been invented. Reading was out there, <laughs> numbers were out there. People were reading. People were doing them. It's it's not very well known. We always think schools were developed in order to wipe out illiteracy. And, in some sense, schools did play a role in wiping out illiteracy in those areas where nobody did read. So if your parents didn't don't read, you're not going to learn how to if if nobody in your neighborhood reads you're not going to learn how to read unless somebody deliberately teaches you. But it turns out that already by by the 1600s, and certainly by the 1700s, and certainly by the 1800s, um, there were lots of people who could read. And it wasn't just the very wealthy who could read. Lots of people could read. And it was clear that if your parents could read, you were going to read. Yeah, <laughs> It didn't even require any deliberate teaching. You just picked it up from your parents. Everybody learned how to read from their parents. Interesting. Uh, I don't remember the data, but I have read data that the great majority of people in England and in the colonies in America could read before <laughs> we had schools. Um, There were even, you know, here's an example about reading that I I wish I had more of the data about it, but I've I've read this claim in two or three places, and it would be interesting to check it out more thoroughly. Large numbers of enslaved people could read, even though it was illegal to teach them to read. (laughs) <laughs> you could be put in jail for teaching a, an enslaved person to read in the, in the in the in the during the times of slavery in America, and yet many of them learned to read. They snuck ways of learning how to read. It's just not that hard to learn to read if you want to learn to read. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, in school, we're trying to make people read who uh, don't necessarily have any interest in reading. Or they're certainly not interested in reading the stuff that they're asked to read in school, and so they're being forced to read when they're not interested in reading, they're not in in a way that they not meet the way they would naturally learn to read at an age that they're not ready to read or, or, uh, and, and you're building up blocks against reading. But if you wait until somebody is really wanting to read, you know, you can't stop them from learning to read unless you lock them in a closet.
0: true. (laughs) Yes. So why did we feel like we had to force people to go to learn? And I think that over time, the common assumption among adults is that one, children are inherently lazy and will not learn unless they're acted upon or forced to. And number two, that adults know better than children what they need to learn. Therefore, schools are essential for us to learn and progress. Um, How would you, what has been your experience? Has, either have you found that to be true or not true why do we feel like we need to force kids to go to school
1: yeah so you know the only way that I can make sense of why we have um, coercive schooling there's no nothing else makes sense to me about it There doesn't there's no logic to what it is we're teaching school in school and why we're teaching that in school as opposed to something else. There's no logic to the view that everybody should be learning the same things at the same time. There's no logic to why let's say everybody at high school ought to be studying quadratic equations when almost nobody ever meets a quadratic equation in ever in their life. <laughs> yes. And even the teacher, you know, there's, there's no real logic to it, there's no, all the science that we have about learning tells us that the conditions in school are the worst conditions for learning. <laughs> the anxiety being produced inhibits learning, The fo- the forced nature of it inhibits learning, the fact that you're the public nature of it, that you're embarrassed to, if you're not very good at it in front of other people, all that inhibits, inhibits your, it freezes up the mind and prevents the mind from learning, all the, all the evidence we have about learning, so school, it's almost as if you've set up the environment, you've almost decided, OK, let's let's create an environment that has all the worst conditions possible for children's learning. And then let's see if we can get them to learn something so it. it so here's the only way that I can understand it. I, I only really began to understand why we have schools the way we do when I began to look into the history of schools. The schools that we have today are really the direct descendants of schools that were created by Protestant uh, during the Protestant Reformation um, in the that began in the 17th century, or kind of really reached its stride in the 17th and then into the 18th century. So before that, um, before that, there were the the schools were kind of for the rich, you know, there were there were tutors and so on, but there was not the sense that the masses uh, needed to be. Quote, educated. So this sense that the masses, that it's important for every child, ideally every child to go to school, never came about because people believed that you had to go to school to learn things that gave you skills and knowledge relevant to the real world. That was not the reason for it. Mm. The reason for it was to save people's souls from hell. <laughs> the belief was that children are born sinners. Mm -hmm. And the sinfulness had to be beaten out of them one way or another, not necessarily literally beaten, but often it meant literally beaten. Mm -hmm. And the way that souls were saved was by, um, biblical instruction everybody had to be able to read the Bible that meant everybody had to be able to read that was the only reason why it was important to read is so you could read the Bible yourself the Bible was the primer for children in the early schools uh, or some kind of version simplified version of the Bible, Bible verses so the the there were actually three Purposes of the early school and in the writings of the people who developed these schools, the the messages to schoolmasters. It's very clear what these are. One is to um, to teach uh, biblical doctrine so that children would uh, believe in the in all the doctrine of the Bible. The second was to was to teach obedience obedience training. That means destroying children's willfulness. It's right, written there. If mm-hmm. your job as a as a schoolmaster is to undermine the child's will and reshape it in the terms that you that that on the terms of the church, basically mm-hmm. was what was said. And the third was to teach reading so that people could read the Bible themselves. That that was it. And uh over time, so schools were formed for the purpose, and now schools were formed in a way that made sense for that purpose, right? Because one way that we know that you teach obedience is by setting things up where you have to obey. I mean, the only way, and even today, I argue that the primary lesson in our schools today is obedience. The only way you can fail, truly, the only way you can fail in school is not to do what you're told to do. Mm-hmm. If you do what you're told to do, you'll at least pass, <laughs> yeah. right? The only way that you can pass is by doing what you're told to do. Mm-hmm. And so obedience is the still the number one thing. The person, no matter how smart they are, no matter how much they're learning, if they don't obey and do the things that the teacher is telling them to do, they'll fail.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So obedience is the clear primary message. So schools were set up to teach obedience. We no longer claim that that's what they're for, but that's the primary thing they do. Now, the second thing they were set up for, as I said, was indoctrination. Now, how do you indoctrinate people? There's a lot of literature on indoctrination. You basically get them to repeat the, what you're calling the truths over and over and over and over again. And at some point they begin to believe it. (laughs) That's the way you indoctrinate people. Well, that's the way schools operate. (laughs) What children have to do in school is repeat back to the instructor what the instructor said to them. That was very clear in the early schools. We try to mute that a little bit. We try to make it a little bit more creative today, uh, but we're not very successful at doing that. It's still the case that most students learn that the way you pass a test is you feed back exactly what you were told.
0: <laughs> yes. You
1: feed it back. You might change the wording a little bit, but basically, you don't try to change it very much or it'll get counted as wrong. So. Mm-hmm. So schools were developed for obedience training and indoctrination, and that's still what they seem to do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, since, um, is it the mid 20th century, religion, or at least the Christian religion has been taken out, but it's been replaced with other things that we want children to like be indoctrinated with, right? like. that's
1: right. Right. I I wouldn't necessarily say so. I think that I think that most school teachers, most school leaders today are enlightened enough that they are not deliberately at least trying to indoctrinate children in any particular way. But nevertheless, they're teaching lessons (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they're teaching the lessons in a way that. Is an indoctrination style of teaching it because it's not being taught in a way that you can really question it.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's
1: not being I'll give you an example. So I I'm an evolutionary biologist. I of course believe in the in the in the in the fact, I would say, of evolution by natural selection. It's so mm-hmm. obvious to me that it's true. But yet I object to the way evolution is taught in school (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I applaud people who say we should teach it as a theory to be discussed (laughs) and argued about Uh, because otherwise it's being taught as doctrine. Mm -hmm. And if we teach things as doctrine, then nobody is understanding it. And then somebody can just reject it as doctrine. They can say, Oh, that's just the doctrine that was taught in school. I think people are cynical enough about doctrine today that doctrine, indoctrination doesn't work very well in school, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever it is we're teaching, um, people, it's all, you only really learn something if you understand it. So I, and understanding requires the ability to question it. Is this really true? Why is this true? Well, what if, what about this? What about that? I think that if, if schools are not set up such that everything that is regarded as important to understand isn't being discussed and argued about and presented in a way that invites everybody's opinions about it, then it's indoctrination, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's not intellectual development, it's just something else to memorize and then probably forget later on.
0: So do you feel like with the world that we live in, um, the way that that the society set up where parents go to work, Do you feel like children can still learn from their real life environment? Like, is there or even is there a setup, a way that we can have children live in real life with us and learn the skills they need to learn? If Hopefully that made sense.
1: Sure. So. So it's not as easy. It's not as natural as it would be in a hunter-gatherer band, right? And mm-hmm. hunter-gatherers, you know, I mean, just everybody's around. The kids are naturally present in the world. You know, we live in a world where the adult work world is largely segregated off. <laughs> Many yeah. kids don't even know what their adults, what their parents do at work. If they, you know, they're so uh, we live in a world where um where uh, we live in isolated houses it's not public what other people are doing and so on and so forth and so i think that it doesn't just automatically come natural it's not enough just to take a child out of school Mm -hmm. and say all right the child's out of school and now the child will learn on their own the child isn't going to be able to learn what the child isn't exposed to, what the child doesn't see, what the child is not, in some sense, part of. So, um, in my from from my research, um, there are kind of two general routes that one can go if you want an alternative to a curriculum based school where children are required to learn things regardless of their interests and so on. One is. Homeschooling by, especially to the degree that you're homeschooling by the method that's often called unschooling, where the child is, where you're, you're allowing the child to decide what they're interested in, and you are facilitating the child's interests. I think almost all homeschoolers go in the direction of unschooling, not all the way in the direction of it by any means, but but it's very hard for, for people who are homeschooling their kids they uh they realize that my child isn't that interested in this particular book that's in the curriculum but my mm-hmm. child is really interested in that other book so why not let my child read that other book so you kind of fall into the uh understanding that your child learns best and is happy as best if you let your child choose what they're what they're doing and studying mm-hmm. Now, this only happens, can happen, of course, if uh, the parent um, has sort of the enlightenment and understanding and resources that can make that possible. That doesn't require a lot of money, but it does require some time from the parent, especially for, for younger children. And it requires that the parent be the kind of parent who's willing to listen to the younger child, is willing to be part of the, is willing to take time to help integrate the child into the community. Homeschooling is is a little bit of a misnomer. So people have the impression it all takes place at home, you know, that that the child is locked at home. But I think for successful homeschooling, it works best if the if the family is very much involved in the larger community and then the child gets involved in the larger community and the child gets to know a lot of other people of all ages adults and children by virtue of the connections that at first have to come through the family because the, the little child isn't going to be able to go out and make these connections by themselves so so i think that on, that homeschooling works best for those kinds of families I think a very high percentage of such families can do it. You don't need a lot of money. In fact, the, there's some data indicating that the median income of homeschooling families in the United States is actually less than the median income of overall in the United States. Interesting. And there are many people sort of in even the even you could say they're close to the poverty line and they're homeschooling successfully. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, but it requires a commitment to it and it requires some time devoted to it. Uh, And it requires, you know, there are some families where I've heard from some children, um, you know, I don't like school, but at least it's a relief from home. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. so there are some homes where you don't want the child to be there all the time. You yes, know? it's but, certainly true. So that's um, so that's part of it. So the other route is to find um, a, a school or a learning center that is in some sense like a school that is. Created to be more like a real-world setting. Created to be a friendly place where children can pursue their own interests. Where, so um, some of my re, some of my initial research took place at the Sudbury Valley School and there are other schools modeled after it, um, which is those are are certified schools, uh, but they're nothing like schools as we know them. Uh, so Sudbury Valley, for example, has children there from age four on through high school age, uh, but they're not segregated by age. There's no kindergarten, first graders, and uh, no elementary school, no high school. It's just you're there mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and there's all kinds of interesting things to do. And the adults are not called teachers. They're just staff members. And all of the rules of the school are made uh, democratically by the school meeting, where every student, regardless of age, has the same vote as everybody else. Every staff member also has one vote. So whether you're a four-year-old student or a 15-year-old student or a six-year-old staff member, you all have just one vote at the school meeting. All the rules of the school are made that way. There are no rules that have to do with learning. That's totally up to each person. (laughs) Uh, There are no and and all the rules have to do just with how you get to how you get along with one another. This is like part of the rationale for this was, you know, presumably, ideally, at least we in the United States live in a democracy. And uh if we want to create democratic cis- citizens, we should raise them in a way that they experience democracy.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
1: Schools, as we know them, are the most schools are the least democratic institutions we have. <laughs> they're the yeah. they're the most authoritarian, most dogmatic most hierarchical organizations. They're the opposite of democracy. Yeah, I, I remember even as a kid. You know, we kind of let la- we'd hear about oh, you know, uh we're all free here in america yeah ha ha ha. because you know, <laughs> we're, <laughs> yeah. we're not free in school right
0: yeah you so, don't really feel that freedom until you graduate. You don't feel
1: that freedom so it all sounds kind of cynical to be learning in civics class about freedom <laughs> <laughs> so that's the so the idea is that the children are free in this setting except for the ways that the so everybody has to serve jury duty when that when you're called for jury duty so you're this is a real world kind of experience, in a sense, with mm-hmm. democracy. That's part of it. It's also real world in that you're not segregated by age and you're not segregated from adults. There's no place adults can be that the children can't be. Uh, children are privy to everything that goes on in the school. as the and, and the adults don't interfere with what children are doing generally unless the children ask for help doing something. Uh, so it's an environment that... Um, uh, and also the there are kind of tools present for all those kinds of activities that are important to the culture and if people feel they need some new kind of tool they can bring it up to the school meeting about purchasing it um, so it, it is a, and and so this is one way where the children are away from home during regular school hours but they're in a very different kind of environment there are now um, a lot of learning centers that are somewhat similar to this but are not certified as schools. So those learning centers are really for homeschoolers, so people who Mm -hmm. are legally homeschoolers, but they're not spending most of their school, the the so-called school days at home, they're spending them at the learning center where there are many other children, where there are adults, where there are things to do. Sometimes courses are offered, but the courses are optional and they're mm-hmm. often shaped by the students in accordance with what, what their needs are. So these there is a growing number of these. And as the number of homeschoolers increases, there's more and more of these. As As you need, once you've got a lot of homeschoolers in any given community, Many of the homeschoolers want some place where their kids can get together and mm-hmm. uh, get to know one another, maybe just one day a week, maybe two days a week, maybe five days a week. Right. So mm-hmm. it varies um, in some of these centers. You can go for as many days as you want. So that's um, also growing that, you know, I might note and you're probably aware of this, that homeschooling has been increasing dramatically in recent years. Uh, COVID really tipped the balance towards homeschooling. And um, before COVID, uh, there was a Gallup poll that showed that 5% of families with school-age children were homeschooling at least one of those children. A, A year later, that was up to 11%. And that was so that's a huge increase as far as I can tell now there hasn't been a systematic poll that I'm know of. But as far as I can tell from the reports of state homeschooling groups, most of those people who started homeschooling uh, are staying with it. So I don't know. I don't know if it's still 11% I don't know if it's more or less or still about that, but but we do know that it's a, a, it's a very sizable chunk of the American population, and that's creating the, a lot of possibilities. Mm-hmm. So a lot of libraries, for example, are beginning to accommodate homeschoolers. Homeschooler kids can be there during the day, even without their parents in some libraries. Uh, some libraries are op- making special offerings for homeschoolers, like a science fair for homeschoolers, or <laughs> opportunities for homeschoolers to, um, to to take out books longer than other people. You know, there are all sorts of hangout places for teenagers is, uh, within the library is also becoming more and more common. That's not just for homeschoolers, but it's a great resource for homeschoolers. So yeah. so those, a lot of things are happening that's making it easier to homeschool.
0: Yeah, definitely. In fact, we, uh, we have a little, I guess, pod group in our community. That's where my three kids are at. They're hunting for morel mushrooms on the property wow. of one of our friends. She's teaching them about the different mushrooms in season and which ones are edible. Um there's just so many opportunities once you start talking to people, once you start looking at the community. Um and it's yeah, it's when I was homeschooled in the 90s, there was not as many opportunities. Um, and it's so it's exciting to see the movement growing and seeing that kids can get more involved in the community, that they can learn from people mm. in the community. And I feel like when kids learn, um, when they actually experience the real world, they're motivated to learn because they realize, oh, these are skills I need to right. achieve this goal that I want. Whereas when they are isolated, in what i'd say like an artificial environment of school they're like why do i need to learn this why do i need to do this maybe some things they really don't need to learn and will never use um but reading for example children may like i don't know why i need to read because maybe i just watch tv when i get home (laughs) Uh, but when they're out when they're outside they're or they're meeting people they are playing in the park and they're seeing Like, oh, there's a problem with this infestation of a plant. Like, what is it? And like, I don't know. There's just lots of ways for them to be, to gain that desire to learn and to gain skills when they're actually living
1: exactly it it shouldn't be sur- surprising to us that um, children come into the world naturally wanting to know how to deal with that world that they're in and they know that the, they quickly figure out that the school environment that's not the real world we don't even call it the real world we <laughs> call you know it's a, and yeah. and uh, and also the school you know to the degree that school is trying to prepare people for the real world it is the, the, what us uh, what people within the education system would say is, well, we're trying to give them the information that they might need someday, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what what I have learned from my work and come to believe very strongly is really two times to learn something. One is when you are just so curious about it that you that nobody could stop you from learning <laughs> like, yeah. you know except by locking you into a closet. The other time is when you need to know it. <laughs> yeah you know anything can be learned when you need to know it you can if you you know I, I've I've talked to uh, scientists because I'm interested in why it is we teach math and nobody really understands the math. Most people don't understand the math they've learned in high school and even the teachers teaching it don't really understand it. So they're teaching it kind of by rote and they're, you know, and so it just always seemed like a waste of time to me. And I'm somebody who actually loves math, but but Mm -hmm. the, um, so I would ask scientists, um, so tell me, what So tell me about the math you use in your science. And also I'm curious to know if what you learned about math in high school um, plays a role, any role in your understanding and your use of the math. And the answer I almost always get is, oh, that math is just a total waste of time in high school. The math I use for my job is a very specific kind of math, which I have to learn on the job. I have to learn it in relation to what I'm doing. I think that's true for scientists. I think it's true for accountants. I think it's true for anybody who does math in the real world. It's, you learn it very specifically, and you understand it very specifically in relation to what you're doing. It. Learning it in advance just in case you might happen to need it someday. <laughs> you know, and, But that's the approach we seem to take for everything. Why would you know the And the, the other thing that I think every child knows now and um which is also by the way one of the things that makes homeschooling so much more easy than it's ever been is anything you want to know you know you've got it right here (laughs) a couple Hmm. a couple pushes of the button and you can find the answer there's there there is you know you used to have to go someplace to find the answers you would have to go maybe you maybe you had an encyclopedia in your house and that would be give you a very limited kind of answer you really couldn't explore for other people's answers or que- you know questions about it you, maybe you'd have to go to the library and find a dozen books on the topic maybe you'd have to and And the I, schools were one of, if schools had any function at all, even if universities had any function, it is a repository of knowledge, ideally. It's a place you go where are the people who know stuff <laughs> who mm-hmm. could answer your questions, and there's books and resources that you can use. But now you don't have to go any place for that. Yeah. <laughs> you can just find it right online and kids are great at finding it. Kids know how to do this stuff. They're better than adults at figuring this out, generally speaking. And so so that has also made homeschooling if somebody says, you know, I really I, I really need to figure out um how to calculate compound interest rates <laughs> you know you just go to a little website about calculating compound interest rates and it tells you how to do it and what the rationale is for i, I happen to give that an example because i was told by uh, i was talking i was actually this is a little survey i did with um, people who um, read my psychology day blog post uh, about learning math and um I had asked questions about you know experiences with your homeschooled children uh learning math on their own and this uh, mom told me about her child who i think was 10 or 11 years old who was playing a video game that involved calculating compound interests <laughs> to know how much you've earned on your investments over time wow. And he he figured it out. I mean, he found online what you have to do, how you calculate compound interest, and he understood it. Hmm. So you know, here's something that you know, most adults would be kind of mystified: what even is compound interest? How do you figure it out? The fact of the matter is, anybody can do it if they need to do it, and you can find out how to do it online. So,
0: yeah, yeah uh, it's true. So and you there's don't. So many, yeah. There's so many videos on YouTube. My husband exactly. rarely hires anyone to do anything anymore. Because he's like, well, I'll just watch a YouTube on how to put in hexagon tile, or I'll watch this. Yeah, thing. same That's
1: with nice me. Thing. Same with me. I used to have to. I hated hiring people. I always hated hiring. But I, so I used to have to go to the library and get a how to fix it <laughs> book. And chances are, I didn't have the exact kind of plumbing that I have in my house. Mm-hmm. Or the, so. But now you can just find it. You just scroll through and you find it. And it's so clear. It's so you know. Yeah. So, and but we're we haven't. We haven't uh, taken, I mean, here's the irony. So here's this marvelous educational tool. And in school, children are, are prevented from using it. <laughs> They're yeah. not allowed to use it. <laughs> <true>. because Why? <laughs> because that undermines the teacher who's supposed to be the source of knowledge.
0: And that concludes the first half of my conversation with Dr. Peter Gray. Next week, I will be sharing the second half, which is all about play, including his surprising opinion on video games. Are they good? Are they bad for children's brains? Should we inhibit our children from playing? Should we restrict their game time? We're going to cover all those things next week. you can find this episode's show notes as well as more information about this topic on our website www.simplewonders.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and or rating the podcast or even better share it with friends or family. If you'd like to further support our work here, you can donate by clicking the link in our profile. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to discuss our next topic until then go out and work some wonders.